there are people that sell it, but it doesn't necessarily offer the same profits of cocaine um, and other other drugs. Uh, and also, let's not forget, magic mushrooms actually grow in the UK in fields, farmers' fields, all around, up and down, and and plenty of people go off and pick them. Um, and which fields would they be, Mark? <laughs> so normally, uh, from what I understand, uh, normally I think where where cows graze is quite a good place. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addersmith Industries podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, the head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Mark Oates, the director of WeBait and founder of the Snus and Nicotine Pouch Users Association, as well as being a fellow of the Addersmith Institute. Perhaps quite a number of second jobs there that we can uh, chat about later. Um, in this week's episode, we're going to be discussing MP second jobs, COP9 and magic mushroom medicine. While COP26 carries on in Glasgow, there's another COP going on this week that could have a big influence on billions of people's lives. It's COP9, the World Health Organization's annual tobacco and vaping policy meeting. Now, I think for many of our listeners who've had enough of all the rumble coming out of COP26 in Glasgow, hearing that there is another COP going on is probably horrifying. Um, what, what goes on at this COP and, and, and why should we be interested in it, Mark? Well, governments from across the world uh, come together to meet and decide on what rules they're going to create uh, effectively for all those people that sign up in a very similar way that happens at COP26, where in COP26, they'll make uh, agreements to try and say end the use of coal or reach net zero by 2050. Uh, At COP9, they will try and come up with some kind of rules that determine tobacco regulation. So that could be things such as banning uh, packaging that has anything other than horrible warning signs on, or it could be uh, potentially banning things like flavours when it comes to vaping. Um, Why should we care about it? Well, I think when you look at the hierarchy of the world's problems today, whether it be malaria, HIV, AIDS, poverty, malnourishment, and even climate change, none of them come close to the number of people that have their lives shortened by smoking cigarettes. Um, And there's a real opportunity for perhaps the British government to step up and um, have its say and make the world listen, whether it will is another matter. Yeah, so Mike, there's another COP, it's another conference of the parties. What's going on in in practical terms? Who who goes along to to COP9? Is there another big conference full of NGOs and uh, lobbyists and whatnot from from all sorts of different backgrounds, like we're seeing up in Glasgow. So the power is really held by individual members and individual signatories to the Framework Convention Tobacco Control. Um, you've got a secretariat that runs the event, but but it's and the, the signatories to... are countries. Yeah, the signatories are individual countries. Um, Britain uh, is one of them. America isn't actually. Quite interestingly, they've decided just to completely ignore uh, it. But um, they have the power to determine what rules are set uh, for uh, tobacco. In truth, what it really means is that they're, they're very keen on uh, anonymity, anonymity, you know, a unanimous vote. So they're very keen on uh, unanimous decisions. And that means that countries can set their red lines. And really what we want Britain to do is, is make sure that they set their red line at a, at a point whereby it doesn't hinder our own domestic legislation. In terms of, you know, transparency, who attends the conference, uh, it's very close. Uh, This comes down to the history of, of, as we know, the tobacco industry uh, in the 1960s and 70s lying uh, in the US Senate. And so they they basically just shut out everyone, which is kind of ironic because actually what you end up with is countries, but they're they're not without interest themselves because not only do they receive huge amounts of tax money from selling cigarettes, um, cigarettes sold in their country, but also countries like China own and have a monopoly on their entire industry. So they've got an incentive, not necessarily uh, a good incentive to to hinder the growth of reduced risk products such as vaping. Yeah, well, what, what's quite interesting is we, haven't, we don't really hear anything about this uh, at all, Daniel, in, in the UK media, as much as people are obsessed with, with, with COP26, when, when arguably smoking has a much bigger impact or at least bigger direct impact today on billions of people and their health. Um, It's quite interesting what we've seen from the WHO with respect to attitudes to vaping. 
um, which, which don't tend to be particularly positive and or aligned with the UK position. Now, does it, Daniel? No, and the, the point about kind of secrecy or at least the, the lack of media coverage is really, I think, important here. There's a kind of long-standing tradition at this COP conference of symbolically holding a vote to exclude the journalists that may turn up. If obviously, this year's a virtual event, but in general, when it takes place physically, they sit there and kind of under the guise of excluding any sort of tobacco industry interference, they just kick out any sort of independent journalists. And of course, you know, many parties to the FCTC are countries that own or at least partially own their own state tobacco companies, China, Japan, India. You know, this is not really um, a consistent way of doing things. But yeah, as you mentioned, the, the WHO and, um, and the FCTC that are part of this have a really long history uh, of being hostile to any sort of reduced risk products. Um, various statements from regional offices of the WHO saying vaping is as bad as smoking. If you look at some of the WHO's social media in the past few months, but also the past few years, what you see is basically an attempt to uh, lump in vaping and any sort of other reduced risk products in with um, smoking combustible tobacco. Um, and I think this partially comes from, if you think about it, just in terms of like ideologies and attitudes, it comes from a fairly, I guess, neo-Puritan stance that it's not just that the best thing you can do is quit, but in fact, the only thing you can do is quit. The kind, kind of abstinence-only approach, which the WHO doesn't tend to take when it comes to other issues. They've actually been quite, quite good and quite a loud voice for um, for drug policy reform and and certainly warmed the idea of, say, decriminalization when it comes to that on the basis that harm reduction works, it's effective and it saves lives. But I think this seems to be a different sort of uh, culture when it comes to the tobacco control aspect of WHO, where they're just hell-bent on getting rid of any sort of nicotine use whatsoever. Um, and they kind of conflate the, the tobacco industry with vaping. Um, and, you know, I think partially that's the Puritan attitude, but partially it's just a, a case of not really understanding how uh, the role that vaping and that reduced risk products could play in improving people's health. There's a lot of kind of motivated reasoning towards being skeptical of, say, the long term health effects of vaping, even though they're very well understood. Um, and there's very unlikely to be a mechanism of action by which vaping could be anywhere near the same magnitude as, as level of harm to smoking, despite the fact that the UK's public health bodies and various NGOs in this area have consistently pointed to vaping being much less harmful than smoking, um, and just generally all the evidence pointing that way. They're worried about things like uh, youth take-up, despite the fact that this is not really a problem when it comes to the UK or in fact most other countries where they think is, is legal, regulated and, um, and in many cases supported as a stop smoking method by the state. So they're not very good on this, I think, is the, the summary. Um, and it's a shame because obviously you know, the UK is one of um, becoming the largest state under of the WHO um, in the next few years. Boris Johnson making a big deal of his pledge in the midst of COVID to do this uh, and of course we're shoveling hundreds of billions of pounds of taxpayers money into an organization that's directly contradicting everything that the uk government has worked so hard to achieve in our own um, tobacco and uh, vaping efforts daniel when you look at uh, the, the covid situation and the covid vaccine i'm very proud of myself to have had both vaccines but the world health organization is very good when it comes to uh, any suggestion um, that uh, you know, obviously the COVID vaccine is not 100% safe. We know there's there's a tiny, tiny, tiny risks, as there are with everything that people do. So you know, the, the female contraceptive pill increases the risk of um, a blood clot. But we, we we look at things in on a risk continuum, and so we know that yes, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny risk of issues and, and effects from the COVID vaccine. We recognise that's much better. Than being in a situation of not having the vaccine so do you find it as frustrating as me that, that it seems the world health organization has one belief of harm reduction when it comes to covid vaccines and covid but when it comes to uh reduced risk nicotine products they're just completely no you either do it or you don't yeah it's, i think it's a completely incongruent approach what i feel the sense of here is that a kind of group think has 
um, formed in the WHO and a lot of the kind of global public health circles. You can certainly say this in the US that, that vaping is, is inherently evil and therefore um, because it's potentially for the Puritan reasons you've said or just because of a precautionary control approach, we're not going to allow the risk of a new product that we don't fully know what would happen in 50 or 100 years time, even if we think it's better than the current product, we, we, we don't want to take the risk that, you know, maybe nicotine really is a problem, even if um, that, that isn't well substantiated. While in the UK, we've had a kind of the opposite group think, which is the public health authorities are pretty consistent in the UK saying vaping is better. So it's wherever you look, you've got kind of a different kind of group thing, one, one more accurate than another, but both reflecting a kind of group conclusion. Are there any other countries on the UK side here? Um, let's say the UK really wants to push back at the WHO. Um, are there any other countries that have embraced vaping as much as the UK that have reached the, the same kind of conclusion that Public Health England did, that it's 95% safer and, and a, a great alternative and, and a way to ultimately save lives? Well, New Zealand has, has recently uh, taken a big step forward with vaping. Um, but I, I'd say New Zealand and Britain actually share something, which is they're quite positive on vaping, but they don't quite get the whole harm reduction thing. And we're seeing that with the British government, questions that were asked of them before they went to COP9, you know, will you be taking a harm reduction approach? Vaping is harm reduction. But their response was, no, we won't be taking a harm reduction approach. We'll, we'll be stand- saying that vaping has been quite useful in reducing the number of smokers. Um, and that's very frustrating because they, they understand it, but they don't really get the philosophy. Um, and, and actually, if we're going to help people, we need to get the entire philosophy. Uh, and that means we need to actually recognize it's not just vaping alone that's going to reduce the number of smokers. It's going to be a, a big uh, smorgasbord of options from Swedish snooze, which contains tobacco, but is probably safer than even vaping. Nicotine pouches, which is probably the same kind of risk of having a coffee. Um, I, I suppose what, what, what people need to do, which I think people find it hard to do, is to realise that nicotine isn't going away. I don't know of any country in the world or community or culture whereby people have started using nicotine or tobacco and then they've stopped. What we've seen is countries like Sweden use nicotine and then move away from the most dangerous form of nicotine smoking onto a very safe form of nicotine, Swedish snus. Um, so so it, trying to change that fundamental philosophy that people have uh, in the same way, some people thought that the way of preventing STIs and uh, uh, unwanted pregnancies was to tell people not to have sexual intercourse. Well, I think the listeners will know that telling people not to have sex doesn't really work. What you do is you arm them with the knowledge, information, <laughs> condoms um, that, that will actually help them. And, and we're seeing at the moment a revolution uh, in the HIV AIDS world whereby PrEP is being taken uh, by at-risk groups, and it's fundamentally reducing the transmission of HIV. It's saving lives. And again, PrEP is not entirely risk-free. It's just vastly better uh, than, than the risks that are associated with HIV. Well, yeah, I mean, speak, speak for yourself. Uh, I don't know the, the official ASI position on abstinence. Um, uh, <laughs> no comment. I, no comment. I think suffice it to say, uh, it's not an um, abstinence organisation. Um, but, but Daniel, in a practical terms, you, you've done a, quite a few papers on this topic over the last couple of years. Um, what do you think are the kind of key policy changes you'd like to see? Now, now that you've kind of previously focused on the fact that now the UK has left the European Union, uh, there's a lot more regulatory freedom in this respect. Where can the UK diverge and actually be quite successful um, in tobacco harm reduction and in saving lives? Yeah, so it's so on the kind of international level, coming back to COP9 before I go on to the domestic stuff, it's mainly a rearguard action. There's a lot of talk of proposals for things like banning the sort of flavours that uh, make vaping so appealing to smokers to actually make the switch and just, you know, standardising it all to one sort of tobacco flavor even though there's very good peer-reviewed independent academic evidence that flavors play a really key role in helping vapors to make the switch to to that safer product and there's also a lot of pushback on things like uh, like marketing and advertising whereas for the uk i think we're in a very good spot now certainly internationally but what we can do especially given that we've got this opportunity for regulatory divergence post uh, leaving the EU is we can look again at some of the EU rules around marketing and advertising for these sort of products. That's probably the number one thing that I would look at is making sure that when someone who smokes cigarettes walks into a vape shop and they pick up, you know, uh, a vape in the packet that that package says on it, 
vaping is at least 95% safer than smoking, according to Public Health England, because still, despite all these years of a, a fairly pro-vaping policy in the UK, you've got huge levels of misunderstanding among smokers about their relative risk. Something like half of all smokers still don't think that vaping is significantly less harmful than smoking, which is a stunning indictment of public health communication, but also the failure to use what is probably the most effective communication tool known to man, and that is, of course, advertising uh, in the private sector. So that's one thing. I think other than that, we need to accept in the UK that, that vaping can and has and can um, continue to play an important role, but that it's not enough, and that with the emergence of the sort of products that Mark's mentioned, your uh, snooses, nicotine pouches, heated tobacco, uh, all with very good evidence to show a significantly reduced risk potential compared to combustible cigarettes. So we take best advantage of those and make sure that they're included as part of the policy discussion and actually that they're treated in very similar regulatory terms to the way that we've treated vaping. Um, the way that we've done that has worked very well. It's saved hundreds of thousands of lives at minimum. Um, and we should do exactly the same for other products because you know, personally, I, I used to smoke 20, 30 a day at uni. Then I tried an e-cig, one of the very early ones. It was crap. And I went back to smoking. Uh, and then I tried uh, heated tobacco product, which worked really well because it. whenever I went out drinking, I didn't like the taste of vaping, quite like that kind of tobacco taste. Then I went to nicotine pouches uh, and kind of settled on them. And that's where I've um, that's where I've stayed. And the same is true for a lot of different smokers people have different preferences uh classic classical liberal uh, insight there that people are in fact different um and that whilst vaping might work for some people it might not work for others and they need a different approach so making sure that they're regulated in a way that is consistent with being reduced risk so that when it comes to advertising taxation uh etc and also that they're included in some of public health well, the successor to Public Health England's uh, evidence reviews and that they're publicised by the public health groups in the UK as a viable alternative so that people actually know about them in the first place. And it's one of these things, I'll just finish up here, that the thing that really irritates me about this is, you know, what was the point in Brexit? If we're not going to be doing these sort of really obvious, really great regulatory divergence efforts on something that's so simple, it doesn't require that much legislation to change our rules around this compared to what the EU have, then you know, wh why did we do this in the first place? We wanted to do things differently. We wanted to be a leading global voice, an independent voice. We're not even an independent voice at the moment at this COP9 conference because the government's decided uh, we'll just send a few um, civil servants along who will just kind of parrot the WHO party line. We're not really um, diverge from what the WHO has been saying for years on this. We need to really just embrace this opportunity with both hands and be proud of the fact that unlike most other countries in the world, we're taking an active effort to improve and save smokers' lives. Well, on the note of improving people's lives, perhaps somewhere where people's lives aren't often improved, MP Sleaze. Owen Paterson's resignation following a failed attempt to change parliamentary scrutiny rules has sparked a rather robust debate about whether MPs should be allowed to have second jobs in the first place. Uh, just coming back to the start of this affair, Matthew, and I'll start with you. Do you think that Paterson was wrong to bring attention to ministers and official uh, issues related to the companies that he advises? Was the excuse that these were urgent medical matters good enough or actually was he pretty much banged to rights and in the wrong here? Look, I'm, I'm kind of very split on this because in a sense, if, if you have privileged knowledge about a serious yeah, public health issue that um, Patterson put forward to ministers and officials, you kind of have a, a moral duty, I think, to, to do that. Now, I think where he fell down in some of the standards was some of the language he used, you know, talking up that the products that the companies he was advising were selling, also some questions about using his office to organise meetings. It does seem, though, at the same time, um, there was some question about process of questions about whether or not um, Owen, Owen person had the proper ability to defend himself, but the impact that had on him and his family um, at, 
quite a difficult time. It, it, there, were, there were quite a number of questions about it. It seems, if nothing else, politically, this proved quite disastrous for the government. Um, that the whole rigmarole to you force um, on a on a three line whip all their their MPs to defend him, and then flip around the next day and say, well, actually, no, we we, we reversed this, and um, the whole thing about changing standards rules, and um, we're not going to do. We actually had nothing to do with Owen Peterson. It it was just quite a messy political moment, um, and has has created a lot of anger and frustration amongst Tory backbenchers. When well, there's a lot of goodwill about Boris and, and number 10 and, and whatever else, it, it, it didn't necessarily play out as planned. And in retrospect, I think it, it probably would have just been easier for the government to say, okay, we're going to reform the standard system later if there's issues, take your 30-day suspension. You could probably, you know, win a recall vote or a by-election and stay in Parliament. I think it's 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 bad for the UK that on medicine is no longer in Parliament. I, th- I think it was an, an excellent parliamentarian and, and someone who, who cared deeply about issues and, and was was quite attuned and w- was one of the, the the kind of good old hands of Parliament. I think it's, it's a shame that he's now gone through this whole rigmarole, um, this feeling of, of abandonment and then uh, resignation. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the, uh, the Daily Mail front page of MP Slees probably put the wind up a number of Conservatives um, just before they, they basically... You turned on this. I do wonder how much of this is actually a, a kind of Westminster story in terms of its impact on public opinion. I, I remember seeing uh, a tweet with someone saying, no, it's not a Westminster story. And people who say that are, um, are ridiculous because a YouGov poll found that uh, something like a third of the British population were paying attention to this whole rigmarole. Um, but then, you know, you see Tories plus two in the latest poll and you're like, ah, maybe actually it doesn't matter particularly much. Um, Mark, I know you, um, you had a, a stint in Parliament and probably saw the, the rough end of the, the need for um, disciplinary systems for MPs. Do you think that the, the current disciplinary system is working fairly effectively or is it in need of some serious reform? Well, I think politicians, uh, they very much feel in Parliament that the only person that has power to tell them what to do is their electorate. And they feel very strongly about that. And so anyone that is uh, outside that uh, that system, they, they, they feel affronted. Um, but they, there needs to be someone who helps set the rules and the markers about what is right and wrong, whether that's bullying or whether that's... Um, what jobs they should take. They, they, there has to be someone in, in a civilised world to be the arbiter of that. Um, and I think clearly in this instance, the, the politicians were very frustrated that they didn't have a say. But I don't think it really works if um, the, the politicians can both be the ones uh, making the rules, breaking the rules, and then being the judge on whether they were right or wrong to vote in those rules. I mean, a lot of politicians would probably like it. There was talk of having it so when there was a disciplinary moment with an MP, they would actually have a debate and a vote in the House about whether or not to suspend that person. Um, and the politicians obviously wanted a role, but but I think that there's a place for someone outside. The problem comes is, and, and this is what a lot of these Conservative MPs are complaining about, they feel that the current commissioner is somehow political. And, and we have to be honest, it's very hard for any human being to make themselves neutral of politics. So I don't know how they develop a system. Ironically, if the Conservatives had accepted Owen Paterson had made perhaps a mistake and then accepted the 30-day suspension and then later down the line decided to reform it, they would have probably manage to do it. But the, the, the public um, saw it for what it was and didn't like it. Um, j- just on Owen Paterson, I mean, he's a very passionate guy. I've been in meetings with him. He really does care. And you know, if if you want someone to stand up for something you believe in, he's a great person to do it. Um, almost, I think his his passion about being right might have been somewhat of his downfall because he 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 believes he was acting in the public interest, and he was so determined to try and clear his name um, that it's ended up with him resigning really, and perhaps um, ex- accepting um, that even though he disagreed with the decision it may have been more successful for him and also for the government. And it, I don't know, it's quite frustrating to see a government that can't really seem to think two steps ahead that this public outrage would be so obvious. And also all this political energy we've lost um, for, for what was a U-turn that was very quick. Um, so I don't know why there seems to be that inability. Yeah, and the, the kind of discourse, TM, on this has 
very quickly shifted to the idea of whether MPs should be having second jobs. And then the broader question of, well, why, you know, why are they taking second jobs in the first place? Do they even earn enough? So I, I guess coming to you on that, Lesh, are you of the opinion that they, they should be at least allowed to have second jobs? Do you think that they are paid enough? What's your view? <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm both viciously pro-second job and viciously pro MPs being paid more. I know some people say, well, let's pay them more and um, then they can't have second jobs. I mean, I think it is is actually in many senses um, a, a welcome innovation that, that MPs are able to have involvement outside of parliament. You, you don't want a situation where you have basically lifetime politicians, people who, you know, play the party system. They're not really involved with anything business-wise. They don't really have any kind of a professional career. Um, They get into parliament and they kind of do what they're told. They don't really have any kind of contribution to make. And the fact that they can have second jobs um, means that you can attract some people who are quite capable in their fields um, who will still want to involve in the fields. You can get someone who's a doctor or a nurse, um, someone like Jeffrey Cox, who's a QC. I know there's been some controversies about his particular extent of using a second job. But I, I think someone like Jeffrey Cox, who's been a, was a kind of an excellent legal mind around Brexit, is, is, is quite helpful as someone to have in Parliament, um, might not be willing to be there whatsoever if he has to give up, entirely give up his lucrative career as a QC. So it seems completely sensible to me to allow them to have second jobs. Now, I think where the issue is, and actually I think in many respects, the current rules are well targeted, is when MPs second job is in some way conflicting with their, their, their primary job, which is to say if they're being hired not for their professional qualification but, or even for you know, their, their expertise in a certain field, but rather as kind of de facto lobbyists. Um, and you shouldn't use your, your position as an MP to be lobbied by someone else. I think mean, it's fundamentally um, corrupting. I mean, it's only, you know, I, I think there's much broader issues with respect to influence in politics that have very little to do with MP jobs. I, I think the extent of lobbying that goes on behind the scenes you never hear about from, from self-interested companies pushing their wares in various ways is, is probably a more central issue than an MP's second job. But I think we, we get very obsessed with the MPs rather than what, what the other things are going on, which we can't really see in the political system. One thing I find interesting is, people discussing whether being an MP is a full-time job and our parliamentary system is actually set up so that being a backbench MP isn't a full-time job because because our um, government sits in the House of Commons you're unlike America and other places you're actually an elected MP and then you go if you get the job as a minister you become a minister and and let's be honest if you become a minister you you then um, you can no longer speak in the House of Commons Um, on lobby for your constituents in that way. That doesn't mean you lose authority or power for your constituents. You just use it in a different way. You're now in uh, cabinet or you're a minister. So you probably have more persuasiveness behind the scenes. Um, but, you know, really, does does Boris Johnson have the same amount of time as a backbench MP to be focused on his constituency? Of course not. Um, and and I remember someone said to me, oh, being an MP is not an evening job. Well, actually, back in the 19th century and 18th century, there were periods when it was an evening job. Parliament would sit from 3 p.m. till 10 or 11 or later. Um, and you'd go and do your day's work and you come to Parliament and then you go and vote. And um, you, there's another way of doing it. People have talked about paying MPs more money. I've got a slightly alternative view uh, for a bit of fun. It's never going to happen. But in Texas the legislature only sits for 50 days of the year. And, and you could revert to a system like that and try and have a, a more separate position for the government. Um, MPs would do their normal job and then they rock up to parliament to vote on legislation when it was needed. Uh, and, and the government, if you were a minister, you would have some kind of rights, a bit like being a reservist in, in the army or the Navy or Air Force, you would be seconded into the government and your job was protected. I do see, I have sympathy, though, with people that are frustrated whereby clearly MPs are getting outside work and they're not getting it because they're a QC, because let's be honest, Jeffrey Cox is earning that money, not because he's an MP, because he's a QC and a very bright man. But there are people that are are clearly um, perhaps only getting that extra consultancy work if uh, because they're an MP. And I think that there's an understandable frustration there. And, and, and I think this grey area needs to be cleared up to try and gain more trust with the public. Um, and that question of what is a second job, because no one would say that, say, an army reservist uh, who's an MP should stop being an army reservist. No one would say that, you know, a GP shouldn't be able to do um, a session 
uh, of surgery on the weekends or evenings. Um, uh, and no one, if you're a farmer and you become an MP, what are you expected to stop being a farmer? Uh, you know, you're always still going to own the land. It's just, you might not be on the plow as much. Um, but, but there is a gray area that definitely needs to be cleared up, I think, to gain public trust. Yeah, I think like the kind of argument about, well, we MPs need to be paid more so they don't do second jobs doesn't really convince me because I buy what you both said that actually it brings a lot of external expertise <laughs> to the role that I think is often sorely lacking. The reason I'm very pro paying MPs more um, is because I'd like to be an MP and want to be paid more. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's, be it's because we don't attract at the moment, I think, a high enough caliber of, of candidate. Like being, being an MP is not an easy job um, and they're not, they're not fully compensated for it, don't get me wrong, but the sort of equivalent levels of expertise you need to effectively play a key role in running the country, you know, even as a, a backbencher, you need to be abreast of all sorts of different policy issues if you're going to have an informed um, choice about which way you vote on something, if there's not the whip. Um, and that just doesn't seem to be the case. You look, you know, you, MPs have been subjected to basic numeracy tests on the probability of flipping a coin twice, what's the probability of heads. And they get it wrong, like, you know, half the time sometimes, depends on the party. Um, and that, that's a different conversation. But um, the point is that you, if you want to attract top talent, if you want to attract the sort of people that would otherwise be in you know, senior management of private companies or lawyers or, or doctors or any sort of kind of high up professional class position that denotes at least a modicum of intelligence, then you need to raise the wages. Because right now what you're doing is you're saying, okay, if you're the sort of person that wants to be a career politician, and you're the sort of person that isn't really motivated by, um, by financial success at all, um, then we want you to become an MP. And actually, I want people who are motivated by at least a degree of financial uh, well-being and success to be involved in that. Because in general, those people tend to have a, a better idea about making uh, decisions related to the economy, uh, I would say, at least. This may be a controversial view. But... Um, and they certainly have views that I think uh, tend to be better informed or they're better able to look at a problem they might not have come across before and become abreast of the important information that's relevant to that problem rather than just coming into it from a, well, you know, I've been uh, in young conservatives or, or um, young labor for my whole life. This is what I've always wanted to do because I'm really interested in politics. Those are the worst people. People who are interested in politics should not be involved in politics. And that's, that's my, my firm opinion. <laughs> do you really think, though, that being a backbench MP is something you need to be entirely, especially, you know, a good, have a good expertise for? Because they're normally just lobby fodder. There's too many of them, 650. I mean, no other country in the world mm. seems to have as many. Um, actually, if we took our, if our government ministers came from outside the legislature, you could just have it so that, you know, yeah. And I don't also don't think Parliament doesn't need to sit that long. I mean, it's a talking shop, really. Legislation is not the path to happiness, as we all know. Um, and so if you cut down the number of days it's sat, you might actually mean there's less legislation. We had a better country. Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly I, I agree that like backbenchers, it's not as important as when you're a minister. They're not as directly involved with those sort of executive decision functions that really shape the future role of, of government policy they are still involved to a certain extent of course in you know various select committees consultations etc but even when it comes to being a constituency mp a lot of that there's still a lot of background knowledge um, and expertise that is very relevant to that role <laughs> now a lot of my friends who work for mps tend to talk about you know one of the main things that comes up it's either going to be housing developments um, and down the road for example or it's going to be the local hospitals not doing very well or it's going to be in many cases um, the home office has denied my request for uh, a visa or whatnot and you're my last recourse this is a sort of classic constituency MP issues that backbenchers face every day and having some sort of knowledge about say you know the immigration system or the economic impacts of immigration or supply and demand when it comes to the housing crisis might make an MP act in a slightly more appropriate 
way when it comes to those particular situations, right? I mean, obviously, you know, these are in some sense personal individual cases and that they're not as directly relevant to the sort of wonkery that think tanks get up to um, and, and broader policy making. But there is still a significant benefit to having that background policy knowledge when it comes to thinking, okay, how do I want to approach this? You know, how much should I believe the constituent that comes to me and says the Home Office is full of terrible bureaucracy and I'm getting deported? Um, probably quite a lot, actually, as it turns out. How much should I, you know, take heed of the concerns that this development will change the local character of the community and that that's more important um, or that that's a, a bigger issue than young people being priced out of the housing market because those houses aren't getting built. Actually, I think that's very important. So I'd say that, you know, even when it comes to these, what come across as local issues, you still need someone with, with at least a degree of expertise that I think is currently still sorely lacking um, in the MPs that we currently have. I mean, I think the fundamental reason to pay MPs more is this is actually not a great job. Like, I, I can't actually imagine anything worse. I mean, you spend your whole day um, basically under this constant media scrutiny. You end up working extremely long hours, not just in Parliament, but also going to all sorts of extremely mundane and boring community events to ensure that people keep voting for you. And then a lot of the time you're dealing with constituent issues, some of which are genuine um, and, and some of which are... Um, complete nonsense but you have to treat them all seriously and make them all feel special so I, I don't think being an MP is actually that good a job um, but in, uh, and therefore needs to kind of uh, in some respects I would say pay people uh, appropriately for the fact that it's it's something that that's quite um, quite a challenge obviously it comes with plenty of benefits and you get you get to make the laws it's quite important but it's it's not always fun and games but I, I also just think in a more basic sense that okay, maybe you can't pay MPs or the, the public won't accept paying MPs as much as a, a senior executive in, in the private sector. But at the very least, you should probably be paying MPs as much as a, a school headmaster or a consultant physician. And that, those seem like decent benchmarks and MPs pays below both of those at the moment. So it doesn't seem unreasonable to, to pay MPs more to do the job they're meant to be doing and, and to do it well and to do it professionally. And maybe you'd have less of an issue of second jobs if they were paid a bit better. But at the same time, I don't see the inherent issue with second jobs just about what they actually do in practice rather than the fact of having a second job. Well, on that note, I think it's probably time to move on to the final topic of our podcast without, sadly, a trademark left segue, and that is medicinal psilocybin or magic mushroom medicine. The largest ever study of medical psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, has demonstrated a significant improvement in fighting treatment-resistant depression. But current rules on researching this compound make it extremely difficult for scientists to further research in this field. And there seems to be little effort on the horizon to actually bring this treatment to patients. Um, Daniel, what does mental health treatment involving psilocybin actually involve? Yeah, it's a it's an odd concept if you're first introduced to it using magic mushrooms as a kind of legitimate medical treatment. But the way that it tends to work is that it will be basically a supervised trip in a medical environment. So you'd in these trials, for example, you'd go to the hospital, uh, you'd be administered a pill form dose of psilocybin, uh, and then you'd be supervised during what is effectively you know a psychedelic experience, your psychedelic therapy by a psychiatrist and a psychologist and kind of uh, in the informal sense trips it, but in the formal sense guided through uh, the experience by trained staff. Uh, and the idea of this is completely different to any other sort of treatment paradigm that we'd have for treatment-resistant depression or indeed many other um, ailments that psilocybin and, and other psychedelics have been trialed as treatments for. Uh, there's a good film called Magic Medicine, which interviews some of the participants in one of the earlier, not uh, the one that you mentioned in the intro, but one of the earlier stage clinical trials and um, talks about, you know, their backgrounds and how they try basically everything when it comes to uh, trying to treat their depression, found nothing works, um, and then follows up with them post um, these treatments and they end up in many cases having significant improvements in their, their mental health, their well-being, and their, their symptoms of depression. So it's a really exciting, completely new way of looking at 
mental health. And I think it's important to kind of separate that, I think, from some of the stigma that surrounds it as an illicit recreational drug, because people's first reaction tends to be, well, oh, you know, magic mushrooms, that's ridiculous. That's just what hippies use and stuff. It's not, it's not a serious medical treatment. But there's a lot of, lot of serious research looking into this. Uh, and this is just the latest example and the biggest example of how it could be very successful. Yeah, we did, we did a paper on this at the ASI last year with the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group that, that involved um, some of the, the scientists at the forefront of this, including Dr. James Rucker, who's um, a, a King's College scientist doing some of these trials. Um, it does seem like it has extraordinary potential to deal with what is quite a serious issue. Um, the, the kind of exact mechanics of it are, are quite fascinating in terms of resetting the way people think and, and, and changing um, the, the, the kind of mental moulds that are leading to depression. Mark, are you optimistic about the potential here? Yeah, absolutely. I think fundamentally um, what we need to do, and this is not just for magic mushrooms, but but all uh, drugs and medicines is try and broaden and open the mind of the public and politicians because we very much have a view, whereas, uh, you know, drugs are bad, medicines are good, when actually they're one and the same. And as Daniel was saying, there's a stigma attached to something that's been sitting in a recreational field for a while, um, when actually it could have very much medicinal uh, uh, qualities. I mean, the way this has come has not been scientific. Our rules around drugs has largely been developed through culture and what's become a recreational drug. But there's some medicines that had they been uh, you know, developed by the illicit market first, and they would be banned and never used by medicine. So in order to provide good medical treatment, we need to recognise the opportunity that some uh, current uh, illicit drugs offer and also recognise the risks that are entailed with prescription drugs. We've seen the opioid crisis in America. So having a more uh, nuanced, pragmatic understanding of, 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 of these things. I think you, when you t- teach a child about things, you're very simple. You know, drugs are bad. Um, medicines help you but we're all adults you know we are now you know so you have to look at it from an adult <laughs> approach speak for yourself Mark. <laughs> and, and, and actually reassess um in the same way alcohol is is got its risks um but just because it's legal doesn't mean it's perfectly safe and you want to be careful with it um yeah i mean this, this is a great opportunity some of the data i've seen in regards to helping people uh with depression with alcohol addiction and even uh, tobacco addiction, some very high success rates in helping people get over those uh, problems. So yeah, really, really good opportunity. And the government needs to just get over its fear of the fact that there's a a sort of stigma attached to these uh, medicines, drugs, whichever way you want to put it. Yeah, it's always quite fascinating to me that there's certain drugs that you've used on the street are awful and moral and wrong, but of course, exactly the same drugs are often used in, in medical contexts, particularly when it, when it comes to, to painkillers um, that are very helpful and useful and, and, and address a lot of people's problems. I mean, I think that the psilocybin stuff, um, as, as well as some other the psychedelics, have um, shown extraordinary potential um, it's, it's, I think it's relatively hard to commercialize just because it's hard, relatively hard to get patents on, on these drugs. So you're not going to get the same kind of investment you're going to get in a new compound from, from Pfizer or something because you have to find um, some other input into it. It is good to see the, um, the, I think through Compass, where, where this latest study came from, there is some um, venture capital investment into this. Um, and they're, they're quite passionate about finding a way of uh, effectively commercializing this so that it can be mass market and they, they synthesize psilocybin and have made their own kind of tablet um, that, that you can use rather than you know, having to go find a mushroom out there somewhere. So making it a more practical effort that, that could someday potentially even be, be used on the NHS or, or be used in normal medical settings um, in, in terms of treating these very difficult things. Um, one of the issues though, Daniel, that we, we've highlighted previously and we particularly highlight in our report is just all the burdens that are currently on these drugs, partly because of the stigma, but also um, largely because of, of the existing law, the fact that um, psilocybin is a schedule one in the misuse of, of drugs um, regulation and a, a class A in, in um, uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act from, from 1971. Now that, that makes it relatively hard and expensive to research and also creates a stigma around it, doesn't it, Daniel? Yeah, the Schedule 1 issue is, is probably the key thing when it comes to this that you want to focus on. And basically, if you want to research uh, psilocybin for medicinal purposes, you want to do the sort of large-scale trials that we spoke about in the intro, you're going to have to get a license that costs thousands of pounds that are required by the Home Office. You've got 
a huge mountain of paperwork in order to get that license, which can take months or even years to even come through. Then you've got to get it past your, if you're at a university, for example, you've got to get it past your ethics board and they'll see schedule one and get a little bit nervy about that. If you want to secure institutional funding for your research, they're going to have the same issue, just the pure stigma of it will put a lot of potential funders off, even though there's a lot of value in this research. And the justification for it is just frankly total nonsense. When the Home Office has under pressure responded to you know, people asking, well, why is it so difficult to research something like this? And say, well, you know, of course, it's it's uh, illicit drugs, so we need to make sure that it's not diverted in street use and it's kept in very secure locations, et cetera, and that we have all of this uh, red tape around it so that, you know, people don't raid labs and then sell mushrooms on the street. That seems to be the, the kind of argument anyway. And, you know, it comes across a little bit ridiculous. Who's ever heard of... Uh, magic mushrooms being stolen from a lab setting and then sold, uh, sold on the street. But then you consider that heroin is in the less strict schedule too, where actually there are rare, but there are stories of heroin uh, being diverted towards street use. Um, and, and yet it's treated in a much more sympathetic way to psilocybin. So it's just one of these kind of quirks of drug regulations and research regulations that hasn't been ironed out. And it seems like the Home Office and anyone involved in these issues is reluctant to change it, even though it's basic common sense to do so just because they don't want to ever come across as appearing, quote unquote, soft on drugs. Um, and that perception seems to be more important than trying to actually improve people's lives and come up with a potentially revolutionary treatment for mental health conditions. Mm. We've kind of focused in this discussion at least so far on the the kind of low hanging fruit of, of medical use, which has already happened for cannabis, and I don't think it's impossible to see um, over time uh, a medical use uh, for psilocybin. But but Mark, is there going to be a similar campaign to legalize for recreational use as well? And and, and would that be something that you'd back? It doesn't seem to be a sort of strong campaign on. It. I think if we're not managing to legalize recreational cannabis. Um, then, then I think it'd be hard to persuade the public of of, of magic mushrooms. Interestingly, uh, the law that really banned magic mushrooms only came into force in two thousand and five. Um, it was a bit of a loophole, but you could, if it wasn't dried, then then you could purchase it from shops and then you could dry it yourself and then consume it. And I would ask, is Britain a better place pre uh, post two thousand and five after that ban, or, or you know, have we got a lot less mental health problems? Have we got a, a lot less antisocial behaviour. I don't think we've noticed at all, which I think shows that maybe the law as it was wasn't a terrible um, thing. Uh, understandably, I think people are fearful. Magic mushrooms can send people quite quacky for a short period of time, um, even if it's quite pleasurable, uh, apparently. Um, uh, ultimately, if we could get to a situation where we could manage and control uh the drugs and regulate them, we would be in a better place. I, I, the, when it comes to the, the illegal trade of, of magic mushrooms, from, from what I understand, there are people that sell it, but it doesn't necessarily offer the same profits of cocaine um, and other, other drugs. Uh, and also, let's not forget, magic mushrooms actually grow in the UK in fields, farmers' fields, all around, up and down, and, and plenty of people go off and pick them. Um, and which fields would they be, Mark? <laughs> so normally, uh, from what I understand... Uh, <laughs> Normally, I think where, where cows graze is quite a good place. I was up in Herefordshire. I'm from the countryside. Um, I was up in Herefordshire <laughs> and someone was saying they, they saw some when they went off up, up for a walk. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm one of those odd people. I don't think I would be, if they legalise recreational uh, magic mushrooms, I don't think I'm going to be jumping out and going and buying them and spending my entire time having a trip. Um, and, and I suppose that, that's what people maybe don't need to need to realize is that just because you legalize something doesn't necessarily change its consumption. Um, people like me and others aren't not taking magic mushrooms because of the law. Um, it's not that that's stopping us. It's because, frankly, I'm, I'm not that fussed. Um, I don't really consume much caffeine. That's perfectly legal, but I just personally tend not to use, use that as a drug. Um, so so uh, there's often this fear when it comes to recreational cannabis. Oh, everyone will be high. And that'll be, they'll be eating loads of pizzas all the time. How will anyone get any work done? Well, it, it's currently legal to drink 
but no one drinks at work because you get sacked and it would be exactly the same. Um, I actually think when things are generally legal, people get bored of them. They're not that fast. The, the smoking rates of cannabis in, in, in Holland are actually lower than Britain. Uh, illegality actually can increase consumption, particularly in the youth. Um, so managing a market rather than leaving it to, to drug dealers, in my mind, is always better. Yeah, I think when it comes to the rec recreational side of this, first off, you do have to separate it from the medical use one because you might get a lot more people on board on the medical side. But as soon as you follow up and say, and also we should legalize the recreational use, you're going to then put those same people off. So just emphasizing that they are two separate things, even if I think probably all three of us uh, will agree that we support both um, is important just from a, a kind of comms perspective. But the recreational side, it applies exactly the same sort of arguments as for any other drug legalization regulation. Um, harm reduction is a classic element of this. If you're someone who's having a bad trip on magic mushrooms, uh, you're probably going to be quite reluctant to say, go to the hospital, to the A&E department or um, get help from you know, friends or whatever, because you're worried about being arrested because you're walking around uh, tripping on an illicit substance. And the other aspect of this as well is the criminal justice one. You've already seen several places in the US, um, Denver, I think, being the first to decriminalize these already. So it's not a kind of pie in the sky idea to have some significant drug reform um, on the recreational side. And the reasoning behind the, uh, those successive decriminalizations in the US is that it seems patently ridiculous to be throwing people in prison for a long time for sitting in a field and enjoying the pretty colors, as opposed to, you know, some other um, drugs under debate for legalization where there are kind of more clear and obvious um, externalities when it comes to consumption. I mean, Mark, you mentioned alcohol. That's a classic example. Alcohol having far more obvious and vast negative externalities than uh, taking magic mushrooms. Um, so, I think you've got to kind of remember the criminal justice and the harm reduction element when it comes to the recreational side of things. And yes, support it, definitely. Well, on that note, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Adam Smith Institute's Pin Factory podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh. You've been listening to my colleagues, Daniel Pryor and Mark Oates. Um, if you enjoy this episode, please do rate and review us generously and tune in again next week for more banter analysis. Mm -hmm.